I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, If you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, then you know we've been working our way through chapters 13, 14, and 15. And with the big idea of the sermons being the Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. The Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. This will be the last time we're in 1 Samuel for the rest of this year. Uh, we've got a guest preacher next week, um, a missionary coming to be with us. Uh, excited about that. After that, we're going to do a couple weeks of, of a, a series i got planned out um, before we dive into our Advent series. And then next year we'll pick up where we left off in 1 Samuel. Um, But yeah, the Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. I want you to think about every time you've ever heard a pastor or a preacher or a good Christian kind of try to sum up for you what the the Christian life entails. I imagine you've heard this one. The Christian life is worship. Everything's worship. This is good. It is true. The Christian life is about uh, loving God. Uh, but this oftentimes, and summed up and boiled down this way, leads to us not quite sure what to do with our hands. We know how to love and worship God, but not quite sure how to actually play that out in the real world. Sometimes it gets boiled down the other direction, though. Uh, sometimes the Christian life gets boiled down to just love other people. Uh, this is a, that's the primary way our culture today understands the Christian religion, by the way, is primarily how we should love one another. But that ignores our predicament, our great predicament that we have with God the Father. Uh, which is uh, one, uh, apart from Christ, is condemnation only. Outside of Christ, there is no hope for the lost and dying world. Christ is their only hope. So they need to understand that Christian uh, life is also about worship, not just work. But a fully mature and biblical way of understanding life of a believer must include all these aspects. It must have taken into account the spiritual as well as the physical. It must take into account faith and works. Love of God and love of others it must en- encompass all of those things. So far, we've examined how, uh, how Saul, who is God's anointed one, God's chosen one, has failed in how he relates to God and worship. We see this in chapter 13, where he decided to take sacrificial matters into his own hands. We have seen how Saul, who is God's anointed one, God's chosen one, has failed in how he relates to the chosen people of God in chapter 14, where he puts an oath on them that they could not bear, which leads them to sinning against the Lord. This week we'll see how Saul, who is God's anointed one, God's chosen one, fails to properly witness God in the watching, to the watching world. But before we dive into our text this morning, I want, to, I want to start with a question as I often do. And the question is this, how do we today, as God's people, as followers of Christ, witness to a watching world? If the Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness, then pastor, how do we witness? How do we do it? What does it mean? Most of the people we interact with on a daily basis, this should be true for all of us, most of the people we interact with on a daily basis are unbelievers. That sounds political. That sounds like you can say that in public and people won't get mad. Let me put it a different way. Most of the people we interact with on a daily basis are pagans who worship a false god. Even ones who claim that they are atheists or agnostic, even they are worshiping a false god. Most of the people we interact with on a daily basis are pagans. That cuts a little different way, doesn't it? Puts the emphasis on something a little bit more concrete, more tangible, something that, uh, that, that is external to our merely internal beliefs. 
You see, all of us worship something. This is fundamentally true. It's what it means to be a human being. As people, we are made in the image of God. We cannot help but worship. So then the question, how do we as followers of Christ witness to a watching world of unbelieving pagans? We're going to come back to this question throughout the sermon. And my aim in the preaching moment this morning is to build us a house on a solid rock. Sometimes we as Christians, when asked this question, we give a spiritual answer. Uh, something uh, without the earthiness that it requires. So let's look at uh, the story of Saul here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you're there, say amen. Need more time, say hold up. We're five minutes in, you should have it by now. That's okay. 1 Samuel chapter 14, look with me at verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobab, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, uh, Malachi, Shua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Mereb, and the name of the younger Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahimenaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Remember, over the course of the last few chapters, we've looked primarily at what? We've looked at Saul's downfall. We've looked at how he has actually done things poorly, done things wrongly. But this, this section here is, is, is a counterbalance to all of that. Uh, over the last few chapters, we've seen him time and time again failing. But these, picture, these verses picture Saul uh, as someone who is a, a warrior king, a conqueror, someone who's doing things correctly, uh, driving out the enemy uh, of the land. Despite his sin, Saul was a successful warrior. He's defeated a number of Israel's enemies who had plundered and tormented Israel during the time of the judges. In verse 52, it says that whenever he saw a, a strong or a valiant man, he would, he would attach him to himself, right? In other words, he would, uh, uh, he would grab that young man and throw him into his army. This, of course, if you remember chapter 8, some of the, what uh, the Samuel had said uh, would come about if they chose a king for themselves, that, that this king would uh, take people and, and, and put them into his army. And we see that fulfilled in that verse. The list of enemies in verse 47 and 48 uh, show that he is driving out the enemies on, on, of God's people on every side. You see that this is a warrior king. If, sure, he's got failings and fallings like all of us. But he seems to be the kind of man who, who is like a type of Joshua. Uh, someone who defeats God's enemies. But as we turn to chapter 15, we see the final sin, the final downfall of Saul. And we're going to run through this story, and I'm going to give some commentary as we go, but we're going to read through the whole story, and then I'll come back and and point out a few highlights and a few takeaways, and then we'll all go get lunch. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek, uh, Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that, he ha- all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel 
and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, uh, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. So here we see Samuel uh, approaching Saul. He says, hey, 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 remember, the Lord's anointed you king. And because of that, you need to now listen to what, what the Lord says. And how does the Lord speak to the king? He speaks through the prophet. Right? We see this in uh, chapter uh, uh, 6, that the word of the Lord uh, was made known through Samuel, the prophet. And we can see even under a kingship that the Lord is still speaking through the prophet. So he says, hey, 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 remember, Saul, uh, the Lord anointed you before you were a nobody. Now you're a somebody, you're a king, but you still need to listen to the voice of the Lord. And you'll, you'll, as we read through the story, you'll notice that uh, the, this idea of voice and listening uh, is repeated time and time again in this story. And that becomes important. But anyway, the, the commandment to Saul is to go and then destroy the Amalek people. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Look at verse 5. And so Saul gathers his men. He gets ready. In verse 5, Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay and wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So there Saul is, he's laying in wait, and perhaps he sees a group of uh, Kenites who, uh, who showed uh, favor to the Lord's people as they were departing out of Egypt, as opposed to the Amalekites uh, who attacked Israel as they were leaving Egypt. And so he sees this group of people, and he says, hey, hey, y'all don't want to be here when this goes down. Y'all need to get out of town, get your stuff, and go. And so they, they do that. Verse 7, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, of the oxen, of the fatted calves and the lambs. All that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So you see, the, the, the Saul and the people here uh, decide to uh, disobey God's command to utterly destroy everything that he's told them to destroy. And have said, uh, decided that if they know best, we'll spare the king, we'll spare all the best animals, and we'll lay waste to everything else. This is, this is the story of Saul here. We, we see then a, a shift in the narrative to verse 10. We leave the battlefield, we leave Saul and the Israelite people, uh, and we see that the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And so we see it says, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, uh, says that Saul has broken my commandment. He hasn't done what I've said. Therefore, I regret that I've made him king. And you see Samuel's response in verse 11, uh, one of anger. It doesn't say whether he was angry uh, at Samuel or at Saul or, or the Lord or the whole situation. But it says he cries to the Lord all night. And then the next morning, he, he, he wastes no time. He goes to find uh, Saul wherever he is to see and, and ask him, what's going on? But notice in verse 12, he, he, he goes to Carmel, and apparently Saul's already been there. Saul's, uh, in fact, not only has he been there, he stood up a monument. Notice what it says there in the text, verse 12, for himself. He set up a monument for himself for all the good things that Saul has done. He, want, he wants people to remember and see this is a battle from your king. And then he goes to Gilgal. And so verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, 
Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Notice Saul is completely off balance here. Sam has come to confront, but Saul says, hey, welcome, bro. Glad to see you. I've done everything that the Lord has told me to do. Verse 14, Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? He says, look, you can see all around, Saul, that you haven't done what the Lord's commanded you. Notice it. He says the, the voice of the sheep. Uh, the, the voice of the oxen, right? He's hearing, right? Again, remember that refrain that comes up time and time again in this chapter. And he says, what, what do you mean you've done everything? Verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, and the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Notice uh, Saul here uh, begins to blame the people. They have brought them. The people have spared the best. And they've done it. They've done it all, Samuel. Don't, don't get it twisted, Samuel. We've done it all for your Lord. Notice, he, he doesn't call them his Lord. And he said, everything else, though, we, we did. 95% of the things we destroyed, we did destroy. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Notice here that Saul is, or Samuel is pulling no punches for Saul. He restates for him the mission. After restating that this guy is a nobody, who also knew that he was a nobody. Remember when Saul uh, was first approached by Samuel, uh, he says, like, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm of the least of the tribes, Samuel. But he says, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. In other words, you have not anointed yourself. The Lord's chosen you. And he sent you on this mission, Saul, to go uh, devote to destruction the sinners and fight against them until they are fully consumed. He says, why have you not obeyed the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil. Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, uh, Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God and give God. Notice he's, he's, he's still just giving excuses. This is the people's fault. This is not my fault. He said, I have brought the king, yes, but the people took all the sheep. They took all the oxen. And Samuel says in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have, don't miss this, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And so Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. Notice this, this whole idea of rejection is important because if you remember back in chapter 8, when uh, Samuel was uh, disturbed by the thought that the Israelite people might actually want a king, and he goes to the Lord. What did the Lord say to Samuel? He says, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. 
This is important. Because now we see that because Saul has disobeyed and rejected the Lord, he will now be the one who is rejected. And you see this, like, this sense of repentance in verse 24, 25. Uh, but, 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 but Samuel sees through this, this veneer of repentance. In verse 26, he says, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So you get this visible picture uh, that the author of the story gives us. He says that like, uh, the, the Lord has so rejected uh, Saul that, that Samuel will not go back with him. He says, no, 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 please, please come back. He says, Samuel's like, absolutely not. And he turns to leave. And he grabs the hem of his garment, right, these tassels that would uh, uh, hang from their garments. And it says that he, it was torn from Samuel's garment. He says this, and he says, you see this, Saul? This is a picture of the kingdom being torn from your hands. As the tassel was torn from my robe, so the kingdom is being torn out of your hands. And he says, in verse 28, or verse 29, he says, the, the glory of Israel will not lie. He's saying that the Lord does not lie or have regret. He's not a man like you, Sam, like you saw, uh, that he should have regret. Verse 30, he went on. Uh, he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. And so Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here. Now watch this. You got this is a Halloween weekend, right? Watch it. This is straight. This is, you're going to be like, this is in the Bible? It is. Look at verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, I didn't grow up in children's church, but this is awesome. And I think we should teach it in children's church. <laughs> Samuel said, to, uh, went to Ramah, and where, which is his hometown, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. That's the story. It's a story of a man who thought he knew best and decided to disobey God. The man whom God had put in place has rejected the voice and the word of the Lord and instead listened to the voice of the people. You say, Pastor, what in the world does this have to do with witnessing in today's world? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 1. We see that this is a witness of judgment, that, that, that what Saul is uh, being told to do is, is, is to, to hand out judgment from the Lord. Look at verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent to me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go, strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The main idea, as I've said, is who will Saul listen to? Will he listen to himself or will he listen to the Lord? The Lord tells Saul he must go destroy Amalek because of what Amalek had done when they opposed God's people as they were coming 
out of Egypt. What, what's going on here is the Lord's referring back to a time that you can find in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 13, specifically verses 8 through 16, where Amalek is fighting with the children of Israel. And the Lord told Moses there that day, right? This is the, the battle. My kids just learned this in children's church the other day, right? Where, where Moses goes up onto the top of the hill, uh, right? And he, he holds his arms and it says whenever his arms fell, the Amalekites were, were winning. They were, were prevailing in battle. But when, when his arms were up, the, the children of Israel would prevail, right? And so uh, uh, the people come alongside and they hold his arms up and they win the battle. And at the end of the battle is something important, it says this at the end of the battle. It says, uh, uh, the Lord told, Mo- told Moses that there would come a day when he would utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He says, write it down, Moses. Put it in the book. It's going to happen. And now we find in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel is that the Lord intends to use Saul to fulfill his promises to Moses. He tells Saul in verse 3, he must go strike Amalek and devote to destruction everything. Must not spare any of them, both uh, kill man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So let's, let's talk about it because it's in the Bible. How does that make you feel? Just think about it. You might be getting hung up right here thinking, wait, why would God tell Saul to do something like this? Come on, pastor. There's, there's women and kids involved. Why would he do this? I thought God was loving and kind and all the rest. Why is God punishing this generation for the sins of their ancestors? That's what's happening here. Short answer is, uh, we as Westerners think about justice individually. Individually. Eastern people, like these, think about justice communally. We live in the West, uh, and we think that every person stands alone. Eastern people would say that you never stand alone. You're always part of a group. The group lives and dies together. And the truth is that both of these thinkings are partially right. There is a sense in which, as Eastern people say, we are inextricably united to the community in which we find ourselves. We're never just lone individuals out on an island. What we do affects others in our community, and what they do affects us. You can see this in your own family, right? So take, take for example, a child who's born with fetal alcohol syndrome. What has that child done? How have they sinned? Well, they've done nothing. They are suffering for the mistakes of their parents. The sins of our parents affect us too. And it works the other way as well, right? My kids are blessed by my obedience to God and your children are blessed by your obedience to God. In fact, we see that also in this passage in verse 6 where the, where the Kenites, uh, where, where, where they're shown grace and mercy and told to get out of town so they can be preserved. They had helped Israel when they were in need, and so the descendants of the Kenites were blessed by the righteous acts of their parents. So the Eastern view of reality is partially right. We can never be separated from our community, but it's also true and biblical, as in the West, what we say, that justice is individual, and everyone ultimately will stand before God's throne as an individual and be judged individually for their sins and not for the sins of of their fathers. So I have three theories, three theories on, on why we, we, we struggle so much with verse three. It's not, this isn't biblical. I just have three theories on why we, why we struggle so much when we read passages like this. Let me give them to you. Number one, we struggle because we've been so taught to remove all forms of traditions and things that tie us to the past. Think about it. Think about uh, how kids are, are educated today. 
in America, in the West, not just America, but in the West, in large, like where kids are educated in such a way that they're supposed to question everything, reject all forms of authority unless they so choose, and, and cut all, like we're, we're taught that the new is the best, right, and that the tradition is, is the enemy. That's what, that's what we're taught by and large. And really, this is a, this is a way in which we actually uh, disobey the fifth commandment. That's why so many, even Christians, actually struggle with, even as adults, well, how do I actually honor my mother and father? Well, one way you honor your mother and father is to continue to hand down the legacy that they've handed you, assuming it's a godly one. This is a breaking of the fifth commandment at mass scale. Uh, we also think that everything is so disconnected from what comes before it. This is why we, we, we today think that we're the hottest stuff that's ever walked the face of the earth. Right? C.S. Lewis would call this... Um, uh, the, 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 uh, the chronological snobbery, right? Where we think we know best and that everyone that's come before us were idiots. And that's a ridiculous thing to say. And so, so number one, we struggle because we have been so taught and, uh, to remove all forms of traditions and things that tie us to the past such that when we see uh, 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 sin of the past affecting the present, we're like, that, that can't be right. That can't be right. Number two, we struggle because we are still standing in the rubble of a society that was built upon Christian faith. Now, hang with me. Some of you be like, you, are you a Christian nationalist? Calm down. Uh, some of you be like, well, I know the founding fathers weren't Christian. Well, maybe. But here's what they knew. They, they, they understood the scriptures. And they understood their legacy, where they were coming from. Right? So, so I'm not saying we're a Christian nation, but here's what I am saying. The Christian faith has been so pervasive the idea that because of what Jesus has done on the cross and taking punishment for others, that we no longer need to wholesale wipe out entire people groups from the face of the planet. That even though as a nation we are no longer Christian, even atheists struggle with these types of passages is not because atheists are more loving than God. Think about it. It's because their thinking has been so shaped by the scriptures that they talk like Christians without even realizing it. The entire West was birthed out of Christianity. This is fundamentally true. Fundamentally true. Such that like, when we hear uh, and read passages like this, uh, uh, even in our bones who aren't Christians, like that can't be right. Think about it with me. So, okay, so today's society, pagan, through and through. That's, that's true. But it's paganism which has been birthed out of Christianity. This is why you can find atheists and agnostics today who alike will uh, uh, universally across the board think that like we should in some way, yeah, we should probably in some way love our neighbors and take care of the poor. Universally true. No one's arguing against that. How we figured it out, how we take care of the poor, how we take care of orphans and widows. Uh, then you get into the politics and the left has an idea and the right has an idea. But nobody's arguing about the idea like should we? Should we take care of widows? Should we take care of the poor? And I'm saying the very idea that we should love one another, the very idea that we should treat people as humans is a Christian idea. Take hospitals, for example. There's a reason why most of the hospitals in our day and age all begin with like uh, Christian backgrounds. Like Riverside Methodist. <laughs> it's got Methodist in the name, y'all. And the reason is because out of Christianity was birthed this idea that we should care for those who are sick. When the Black Plague hit Egypt, or hit Egypt, hit Europe, uh, when the Black Plague hit Europe, it was the Christians who hung around and took care of folks. Primarily. That's a Christian idea. 
So even though like our, our, our culture has moved past it and moved back into paganism, they're still struggling with the angst, right? And this is why they, they, they don't even understand themselves. Like if they truly believe, like we all evolved and got here through, um, through evolution, survival of the fittest. Logically, if they follow that to its conclusion, then we shouldn't be taking care of the poor. Let's just let them die off. We shouldn't be taking care of the weak. Just let them die off. That way we no longer have sickness in the future. You see, the, 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 there's a cognitive uh, disconnect. So we struggle because, we, so even as Christians, we, we come to this passage where God says, wipe them out wholesale uh, because we're standing in the rubble of a society that was built upon the Christian faith. Number three, we don't properly understand God's just judgment. So I have good friends who say that they're Christians and believe in God's love, but they have no idea when they come to this verse how to reconcile the love of God with these types of verses. And so they say, well, you know, that parts of the Bible can't be true. Love of God, that, those, those parts are all true, but parts like this, this is man-made stuff. Uh, that's why we shouldn't believe it, because God is a God of love. Therefore, he would never do this. So when we do that, when we say things like that, even you here today, Christians, good luck, God-loving, Jesus-following Christians, you might struggle with this verse. But here's what we can't do. We can't be the ones who put God in the dock and call him to give an account of himself because we don't understand God's just judgment. God alone can call for the destruction of entire people groups because he is a just God. As sinners, all of us currently outside of Christ stand condemned before a holy God. All of us. The thing we should be asking is, uh, when we get to these verses, or the things that we should be realizing when we get to these verses, is, is the fact that, that we're not included in it. Like when it says that go and destroy the Amalekites and everything that they have, man, woman, uh, child, infant, oxen, sheep, destroy all of it. We shouldn't be wondering like, I don't know, God. I'm not sure that's what I would have done. We should be saying, we should realize the love that he has for us. Why has he not chosen to destroy more of us? Why has he instead opened the gospel up to Gentiles and Jews alike? Why has he chosen to love any of us? Why has he chosen to give grace to anyone? And the answer is because he wanted to demonstrate his love for us. We must not be the ones who put God in the dock to call him to give an account for himself. And so we see in this passage, we see that God is using Saul to be uh, the witness of his judgment. And we see this throughout the, other, throughout the scriptures and other places as well. God uses enemies, actually, to bring about judgment on his people. Right? Think about all the times the children of Israel were carried into slavery and captivity. That was God's judgment playing out on them for them breaking the covenant. He uses the Jews and the Romans together to bring about judgment upon Jesus Christ. So how do we as followers of Christ witness to a watching world of unbelievers, of pagans? Can we use this passage as a proof text to physically attack the enemies of God? Are we to be a witness to a watching world of unbelieving pagans as those who bring about the judgment of God today? I told you it was going to get earthy. The answer is both yes and no. Now before you think I am calling us to arms to start another holy crusade, where we round up the enemies of God and destroy them, let me explain. Remember, we're building a house on a solid rock so we know how to deal with these types of passages, and sometimes it requires nuanced answers. The answer is no. Uh, we are not called to physically attack the enemies of God. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament 
do we see God's people physically stoning the pagans? No place. We do see, however, the pagans stoning God's people, but never God's people stoning the pagans. What we do see is, Paul says, like what was read this morning, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You see, our fight is not with people. That's what Paul's saying. We're in a fight that's much bigger than that. We're actually called to be witnesses, not through uh, wholesale wiping out people, but through wholesale obedience to the Father. Isaiah chapter 43 says this, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant who I, have, who I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. First Peter says it like this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You can see here that it is God alone who does the calling and drawing of people near. Uh, that, that they then go uh, and declare this great God whom they come to know and trust. So it is God who causes those who are told the good news to believe, not the person who is the witness. The role of the witness in society, right? So you say, uh, how are we to be witnesses in the society around us today in a pagan nation? Is to simply share all that we have seen, all that we have heard, all that we have experienced. God changes then the hearts. It's also worth noting that all who know him are to proclaim him, not just certain people, not just pastors on Sundays, not just missionaries overseas, but all people are chosen uh, and told to go proclaim who he is. We no longer physically attack our enemies. The Christian response to the enemies then becomes one of prayer, that our enemies become brothers and sisters. So no, the, the answer is our judgment is not through physical violence, but through, through spiritual violence. But the answer is also yes, and that as Christians living the Christian life, following our Savior Christ, and the watching world will be judged by our very lives. You see, not only was it a, a witness of judgment, we also see there's a witness of obedience in the text. And in verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me, brought Agag, the king of Amalek, 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 and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. In other words, Saul says, I did 98% of what you asked me to do. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord uh, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. You see... Part of our, uh, the judgment that we actually give on the watching world, which by the way, uh, how many of you ever heard uh, Christians, thou shalt not judge? Anybody ever heard that? If, if you haven't, it's because you live under a rock. It's the whole world says, Christians, you can't judge us. As if that's what Jesus meant, but it's not what he meant. You see, we will judge the watching world by being witnesses to obedience. You see, we must call out sin where we see it in the world. We must. We must use our words like John the Baptist who did not care what the political forces of his day thought 
but called out the king that he was a sinner for having his brother's wife. And for that, he lost his head. But friends, as the watching world of unbelievers drifts farther and farther into paganism and farther and farther into sin, you will find that with you just believing God's word, with you just doing God's word, you just following Jesus in the course of your life, they will be judged. If you think I'm lying or in some way disconnected from the reality of the way things really are, try it for yourself and see. Don't have sex before your marriage. And watch how your friends who are breaking God's commandments react in conversation. Marry young. And watch how your friends who are more focused on partying and playing games react in conversation. By the grace of God, have lots of children. And watch how your friends who are trying to fill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply by adopting pets react. Go to church every Sunday and once and for all give up on making excuses for this or that and watch how your friends who are so consumed with consuming react. Work hard in your jobs. Not lying, not stealing, working is for the Lord. Be driven, motivated, be the kind of person who loves going to work on Monday morning and watch your friends who are trying to only show up one day a week but still get paid for the whole week react. Friends, we simply need to obey our Lord's commandments, follow him, and the watching world through our very lives will be judged. But we also don't just share our thoughts and our opinions, but everything we do must be rooted in the word of God. And so we have the witness of the word. It is through hearing the word of God that people are saved. Isaiah 55 says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We have the good news to share with the lost world. We have a great news they don't want to hear it. That's okay. It doesn't change the reality of things. I love how Paul explains the entirety of the gospel in so many parts of the scriptures. Right? This would be helpful to memorize verses like this. Verses like 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered of you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is, the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, this is our message of hope for the world. It's not that we have uh, it all figured out politically. It's not that we have it all figured out governmentally. It's not that we have it all figured out on, on how to actually carry out these commandments, but rather that we have been given a word from the Lord. That we've been made right with the Father that our condemnation has been removed because of the work of Christ in our lives. We have, we have that news to take and transform the world around us. Our, our role as a witness is to both tell the good news with our words, but also to share through our action. Witnessing is an all-of-life kind of thing because following Christ encompasses all of life. There's not one area of our life which our Christianity should not change and transform to the glory of God. Listen, we are Christians everywhere we go. You go to the workplace, you're a Christian. You go to the bank, you're a Christian. You go to the sports event, you're a Christian. Listen, nowhere in life do we go that we're not Christians. We need to reclaim this and recapture this for our very lives. 
We need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling he has given us. Be representatives of God and in his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Be prepared to tell the hope that we have in him. It is out of who we are in Christ and whose we are as children of God that we go and share and act in a way that is pleasing to God. Listen, the Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. And all three of these overlap. It's not like we just worship on Sunday, fam. We worship every day of the week. It's not like we just work on on, on Friday and not on Monday. We witness everywhere we go, all the while telling of the good news that we have in Jesus because it's true. This is how we witness to a world of unbelieving pagans. Farther and farther, our our society will slip into a pre-Christian paganism. That's true. What we need to remember is that there's no neutrality in life. There's none. There's no neutrality in life, right? The, the, the great hoax of the enlightenment of our generation, the great hoax, the thing that we've been hoodwinked, even as Christians, is to believe that we somehow have to shed our Christianity, shed our religion, and then we'll get to the bottom of things. That we somehow have to put off uh, what, what, what is ultimately true, and then we can see the, the way things truly are. That's what the enlightenment idea is. It's this idea that like, in somehow shedding religion and uh, adopting secularism, that, that then, then we are, are, are more understanding of the way God's world actually works. And that's ridiculous. It's not true. Secularism is a religion in and of itself. They have, they have a God that they can't prove exists. They, follow, they, they have a, how the world should actually work. They define what's right and wrong. That's a religion. It's a religion in and of itself. So we need to take back uh, the conversation. We need to take back the, the, the way in which we speak with one another. Listen, we've got we to gotta own this in and of ourselves of what we actually believe the Bible to be saying in our day. That's how we are witnesses to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, without this book, without these scriptures, we would be utterly lost. These scriptures speak to every part of our life. Uh, they, they tell us that it's good for uh, instruction and training uh, and righteousness and godliness. It's good for rebuke and correction. Father, may we love these words of yours. May it truly be, as the scriptures say, a, a sword which, uh, which cuts us to the core. It gives us discernment. It gives us wisdom. Knowing how to act in a, in a world that's lost its mind. May we be rooted and grounded in truth. May the aim of our charge be love, Father. We are not like Saul or the Israelites who must go and conquer by force. But we will conquer through the word, through the church, through the, through the work of uh, the Holy Spirit in our day and our age. May we be brave enough to believe it and listen to the voice of you. It's in, your name we, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.